Good, good, good. All right. So let me just explain. I know this is boring. This is like terrible to do on YouTube. Like it doesn't help your viewers retention of the audience retention. So skip ahead if you don't want to hear. We'll put timestamps down below and you'll see where question three actually begins being answered. In a couple hours, those will be up. So um, our internet went down and we had weird problems where a neighbor across the street had internet issues that were causing all like four or five houses to be problematic. They fixed that problem. Recently, there's another problem. And for the past few days, Spectrum has been at all of the homes in our area and in the next street over trying to figure out and fix the issues. So I think that's why my um, why my stuff happened that way. I think that they're, they, they shut it down and rebooted or something. Hopefully it doesn't happen again. I'm going to try. And if it fails again, then maybe I'll just maybe I'll call it a day. We'll see. All right. Question number three. This is from Christine who says, if Jesus paid for all our sins once and for all, why are we still called throughout scripture to continually ask for forgiveness? Example in the Lord's Prayer. Thanks for your ministry. So the Lord's Prayer, the, the verse that you're thinking of is here. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So um, the, you know, the fear is like if I have to ask as a Christian, if I have to ask God for forgiveness on a regular basis, the, the Lord's Prayer is definitely something that can be prayed on a normal basis. If I have to do this, then the implication is that I'm unforgiven until I do it. And I think that um, what helps me with this, and it may seem a little simplistic, but sometimes simplistic answers are the best ones um, on occasion. So what can help me with this is thinking that, um, you know, there's a difference between my position in Christ and my condition in Christ. So my position in Christ is like, I'm in Christ, and here's what Ephesians 1 through 3 talks about. My position is I'm in Christ. Because I have faith in Jesus, I am cleansed by his blood, I am washed and clean. But my condition, my, 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 the way I'm going about my life, may not always reflect the greatness and glory and goodness of my position in Christ. So an example of this might be like, um, maybe you're the, the, um, the, the CEO of a really big company and that's your position. But maybe you wake up and you've got the flu and you're having a bad day and your 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 kids talking back to you, and it's like you don't really feel like what you are. You know what I mean? And so here's here's the thing: me in my daily life, when I sin, I don't lose my salvation, but it seems as though there's a rift in my relationship with God as I sin. It does hurt my walk with God. It doesn't destroy the relationship; it just hurts it. Uh, maybe a better example is marriage. Me and, my, me and my wife are married. And even if I was being mean or rude to her, that doesn't mean we're not married. Positionally, we're still married. But conditionally, our marriage is not healthy right now. I think that you should pray for regular forgiveness as a Christian for the condition of your relationship with God, not for the position of your relationship with Christ. Um, I hope that that answers. That's a pretty simplistic view, but I think that it gets us through it. Uh, Trevor... Ulrich says, what is or Ulrich says, what is your view on the Enneagram? I recently had a lot of problems within my church about this. Um, a, I think it's weird. B, I know a lot of people like it and that's fine, I guess. C, I don't know why it's becoming attached to Christianity. That's strange. Okay, so the Enneagram seems to be a very a likable tool. People like it. I think it, again, A, I think it's weird because it doesn't seem to correspond with actual, like, um, more like rigorous analysis of personality types. The Enneagram doesn't really correspond with that. So it seems more like, like it's very subjective and very intuitive and very questionable. That's the bottom line. It's just very questionable. Um, but when churches are doing this and they're walking their, their, their people through this, like I kind of want to be like, what is like, 
what do you care about as a church, as your mission? What's your mission? Like, is your mission helping people to do personality analysis of themselves? And then you're using questionable tools? That's really strange to me. Now, like, I don't know what your mission as a church is. Like, I want to go into the world, make disciples of Jesus Christ. And when we have these trends that come and go, and they do, they are just trends that come and go, and we grab onto them, I start to wonder why are they so valuable to us when there are other things that should be so much more valuable. A Christian should be far more interested in remembering the fruit of the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, not the flesh, than they are in identifying their personality type. So um, I think it's a little strange. In addition to that, the Enneagram seems to be really connected to some creepy spiritual weirdos like Richard Rohr, who anybody who who lifts up Richard Rohr, quotes Richard Rohr, Richard Rohr is... Richard was a total heretic. He's a total and complete false teacher and heretic. No question about it. This is not, I'm not even being controversial here, you guys. <laughs> this is just, this is just, I'm just being a follower of Jesus here. So when he is promoting all this stuff and he, and it ends up being a foot in the door where the Enneagram is like the bridge that leads you into a bunch of weird teachings. So yeah, I'm very concerned about it. Probably most people who are doing the Enneagram aren't into all the weird teachings, but it is a bridge to get a lot of people down that road. Those are my current thoughts on it. Um, yeah, weird. All right, number oops, number five, number five, Vanessa ben Bennett. I was gonna say Bennett. I don't know, maybe if you were French um, or Italian or something, I don't know. Vanessa Bennett says, can you shed some light on 1 John 5, verses 16 to 17? Vanessa from Jamaica. Okay. Um, this question a lot of people have when they come to this passage of scripture. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, that's the person who's, who's, who sees it, right? He will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. So the big question is um, ultimately what what is the um hold on i'm just i'm double checking something Arrgh. am i getting drop frames again not yet okay but my stream bitrate has just dropped and one of my mods is telling me they're not seeing me was that hopefully you're saying you see me now okay moving forward um hopefully it's working if not guys i don't know what i'll do maybe i'll try on a different day <laughs> we'll see how it goes um yeah, what's the sin leading to death? What does this actually mean? Um, well, a sin that leads to death could be physical death or it could be spiritual death, right? Like this could be like sp physical or spiritual death. If if he's talking about getting life for those who commit sin not leading to death, then the 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 thought could be, okay, well, this, this death of spiritual sense, if it's a spiritual death, it could be like simply saying that. You see a brother who's falling, like pray for them, you know, um, that God would bring them back, you know, and God's going to be answering that prayer. Okay, not that it's guaranteed every time. Then the sin leading to death, the question is, what is what is the spiritual sin that leads to death? I think that that would be apostasy for sure. Like, you're actually denying Christ. You reject Jesus Christ. I'm not like, Lord, forgive him for rejecting you. No, like, there is no covering. There is no grace. There is no forgiveness at that point. Other possibilities for the sin that's leading to death um, would be physical death. So somebody um, who is, let's say that they're doing something physically that is actually going to kill them. And they won't repent. They will not stop. And they're just like, pray for me that God would protect me from suffering the consequences of my sins, of the things that I'm doing that are going to kill me. And perhaps it's saying like at a certain point when someone's living in rebellion and 
they're going to persist until it kills them that you just stop. That is also a possibility. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like I go a little bit back and forth on this passage. Each time someone asks me, I, I wonder about it in a fresh way. And um, and in First John 5, there is connection to, um, to healing. So it, it, that would imply that maybe it's about physical death. There's a sin leading to death, that there's a sin where the consequences you're actually, you know, you're suffering judgment unto death because of the sin, physical death. Then it wouldn't have a connotation about whether it's um, uh, spiritual death or not. I guess I go a little back and forth on that one. I wish I could give you a better answer. One of these days I should, I should dig into it and spend some real time on it. Hot Wax 93 says, when Paul says we're saved by grace apart from works of the law, is he referring only to the law of Moses or the moral law as well? Paul says we're saved by grace apart from the works of the law. Okay, this is a great question because um, when Paul talks about how we're saved in, in Romans and in Ephesians in particular, and he says, apart from works, Romans and Ephesians really emphasize this. Uh, Galatians 2 in a different way. Galatians, it's a little easier for people to try to suggest this is about the law, but, but Romans and Ephesians, these are passages where if you want to say that you have to do works to be saved, like in Roman Catholicism or other groups as well, then you need to deal with these verses, right? So if you, I'll, I'll take you to one of them, Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So, you know, hey, if you're not, if you're not saved of works, then you're saved by faith and it's not of works. Romans eleven six makes this even harder, I think, for those who want to say that you have to do X number of good works or some degree of good works to be saved, like, earning salvation, right? That the works are part of the contributing thing. That's something I'm bringing to the table that helps me get saved and stay saved. And I mean, finally saved, not just initial justification as Roman Catholics would sometimes change the subject and talk about that. Um, I'm going to push back on that and say, I'm not talking about that. We're talking about, you know, being finally saved. Romans 11, six says that not only are we, is it by grace, but if it's by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Meaning that definitionally, if I'm saved by grace, I'm not saved by works. Because the meaning of grace is I'm not working. Now, the pushback against this is, hey, but Paul's talking here about the works of the law. And he often does use the phrase works of the law, of the law. And I'd have two responses to that. One of them would be that Paul does push back uh, on works of the law. But works of the law, here's my first response, include pretty much all the good things you can think of. So it's not like, oh yes, we have works that are not of the law, like works that are like, love your neighbor. Okay, well, that's what Leviticus says. Works that are like, honor your parents. Okay, but that's what Exodus says. Like, these are works of the law. Like, find a work that's not a work of the law and tell me that Paul's okay with using that as a, as a cause of salvation. The second pushback is this. So even if Paul is meaning works of the law, which I don't think he is in Romans, and in Ephesians, I think that here he is not in context. Uh, he's not saying only the works of the Mosaic law. He's referring to just works in general. But also Romans eleven six, man, Romans eleven six makes this really hard because it says that if we're saved by grace, it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. That this is definitional. The meaning of grace is not works. Not just works of the law, but just not works. The meaning of grace is not works. You're saved by not works. This is where Romans has been building this case. Romans chapter 4, it says Abraham, he was justified if he was justified by works. He has something to boast about, but not before God. 
So Abraham, was he justified by his works in Romans 4? Don't go to James yet. Spazzy people, slow down. <laughs> Romans 4. Okay, in Romans 4, Abraham is justified by grace, not works. And Paul obviously thinks Abraham could have done works, did do works, but he doesn't even have the law. The law comes 400 years later. So he's not talking about the works of the law here. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham clearly, his wages are not counted as grace. Uh, to him who works, excuse me, if you did work, your wages are not grace, they're debt. But Abraham got them as grace. Paul's case in Romans is, if you're saved by grace, it's not works at all. Not works of any kind. Not works because works mean earning and earning means not grace. That's what Romans 11, 6 gives us. So that's my pushback on that is that um, that is that is eisegesis or uh, bad Bible study, right? If it's by grace, it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. True of Abraham who didn't even have the law. Even he, you can't say it, he worked for it. If it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. This is Romans eleven six, my go-to verse. Definitionally, we are saved by grace apart from works, period, end of story. Uh, James 2, when you want to go there, I have a whole teaching on that. Look up Mike Winger, James 2, and you, you can check it out. I mean, it's a long walk through the whole passage, the whole chapter. But the short version of, of the answer there is justified here doesn't mean salvation. It means proving someone true. Like, how do you justify that claim? How do you prove it to be true that you're saved? Okay, I, I show my salvation through my works, but I don't get salvation by works. I show it. I demonstrate I'm saved through the, through the life I live because the Holy Spirit has changed me. But I don't get saved that way. Difference between Romans and James. All right, we'll go to the next question. And this is from Joel Parks. Joel Parks says, In light of the lead question today, how do you account for more subtle, compelling examples of gematria, such as Jesus, Jesus, in Greek, calculating to 888, in contrast with 666, um, 8 equals new life, etc. Okay, so I, I don't know that 8 equals new life. Um, I want to see that established first. I, I, that's an assumption we're making here, Joel, and I want to just acknowledge that. Um, maybe maybe it's not an assumption to you. Maybe it's established. You have a character limit. You can't put it all in the, in the, in the, in the question you put in there. So I totally get that. Um, but I'll say this. I'm totally cool with Jesus, Jesus calculating to 888. I'm total, like, I have no problem with that. Nor do I have a problem with that having symbolic meaning. Here's my problem. My problem with the examples I shared earlier about going way too far. Okay, so you have to establish it. That's all I'm saying is you want to say there's symbolism in these numbers. You just got to show it in context and then tell me how it helps enlighten my understanding of the scripture. It's just too willy-nilly. It's just too off the cuff. Um, there's definitely gematria. There's definitely numbers. 666, the mark, the mark of the beast. It's the number of a man. Six probably does represent mankind or humanity in some sense. I think that's a correct understanding. But how often, here's another question, how often in scripture does the number six represent man? How often? Okay, that'd be another question to ask. Should I be looking for it everywhere or is it just important in some places? And these are questions I almost never see people wrestle with. They just assume. So there's there's my answer to that. I hope that helps, Joel. Um, sorry, you have such a small character limit. I'm sure you could have shared more. Rin Blade says, as a Christian, is the Passion of the Christ film okay to watch slash biblical? Thank you all so much for your ministry. It has been a blessing in my life. Sending love from Canada. Well, hello, Canada. Um, so Rin Blade, um, is it okay to watch? I think I think it's okay to watch. Um, now, some would say, well, you, you know, you're having a character pretend, an actor pretend to be Jesus. 
um, well, sort of acting and pretending to be are a little bit, you know, different things. So he's not like, like there are literally people, like there's a guy in, I don't know, Russia or something who says he's Jesus, right? And he has a following. Like he's, he's not, that's, that's wrong. That's blasphemy. And he's going to be judged for that. And his followers are being led astray. But an actor who everyone knows is, is a, just an actor, a guy pretending, pretending or acting the part in order for us to have a, um, a, a, a visual like a teaching, a visual teaching of what Jesus did. I'm okay with that. Okay. So I'm okay with that in the chosen. I'm okay with that in the passion of the Christ. Um, I think people get weird about it and that's a concern, but here let's, let's take the bronze serpent as an example. So the bronze serpent, Moses was told by God to make the bronze serpent and it actually helped people the, the they looked at it and they were healed from the snake bites. This is in, I think it's numbers. And Later, the Jews took the bronze serpent and they turned it into an object of worship. Like they actually started worshiping this bronze serpent. That was wrong, but the serpent itself wasn't wrong. And, it, and then it ended up being destroyed. They actually took it and destroyed it, right? Nahushtan, if you guys know the story. So the bronze serpent was destroyed. What's the lesson? How am I applying it here? I'm not suggesting that God has told them to make this, these movies, The Passion or The Chosen or something. But I'm suggesting we can take it and we can elevate it. Now, if you meet the actor from The Passion or, say, The Chosen who plays Jesus and you just want to go up and touch the hem of his garment, you're weird. <laughs> like, he's an actor. Like, he's just an actor. Like, don't don't spiritualize this guy. He's pretending, you know. He's not healing anybody. He's not doing anything. He's not tapping into Jesus somehow. Like, it's he's an actor, okay? It's, you know, and that's very much fan fiction. I consider The Chosen to be more fan fiction. The passion tried to tried to be a little bit more like careful and like less flexible, but they still are very flexible. Jesus is like building a table that's really tall, and Mary's like, "Why are you building it so tall?" And Jesus is like, "Well, you'll see." And it's like, "Ha ha ha!" A thousand years from now, they'll have tall tables, you know. Um, you know, I know the future kind of thing. So, no, that didn't probably happen. <laughs> um, but I but I just don't take it like I'm really watching Jesus. Um, in the passion, they follow the fourteen stations of the cross where Jesus falls a certain number of times, they do these slow motion falls. That's because of the Catholic tradition and Eastern traditions of where Jesus falls at these 14 stations of the cross, which are probably not historical. So you're not really watching all the, you're watching uh, fiction mixed with fact when you watch these things. And if you know that, you can treat it like, like it is, and then you're okay. But if you treat it like it's like, this is just, I'm just learning what really happened, then you're gonna have a problem. Um, the Passion, say The Chosen, for instance, this is fan fiction. Now, I'm okay with it as long as the audience is informed and thoughtful and not turning it into a, a, a Nahushtan, <laughs> a thing of brass, right? Where you think like, well, if Jesus did that in The Chosen, maybe that really happened. And we're like, well, no, I, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. This is all fan fiction. You should just be, you know, if you can enjoy it and, and, and learn from it, and think about it and it stirs your thinking, but you still can see the difference between the Bible and that thing, then it's for you. But if you can't, if you get fuzzy, if you can't tell the difference between the Bible and the passion, the Bible and these other things, then maybe you shouldn't watch those things. Maybe for you, that's something you should hold yourself from because it causes you confusion. Um, all right, let's go to the next one. Number nine, the Tri-Zelda Brothers says, what does Ezekiel 40 through 48 mean for us? What about Old Testament prophecies about future sacrifices? God bless, thanks. Well, obviously you, you just took nine chapters of the Bible. So like, what do those mean for us? Not only that, nine of the most difficult chapters of the Old Testament. I will say this, 
it means restoration. Okay, Ezekiel 40 through 48, this means that God has an ultimate plan for restoration where he brings Jews and Gentiles together to worship him. That's clear from Ezekiel in, you know, those last chapters. All the other details, I don't have teaching for you on that or, or, or even a survey style teaching for you on that. I will say God's ultimate plan is to bring us together in one. Now, how, how does that change the way that I treat my brother? How does it change the way that I treat a, a Jew or a Gentile? It means that I treat them with hope. I treat them with potential to be, all be part of that kingdom of God, to be coming together to him. People who are part of other religions, I'm thinking, one day, man, maybe you'll be worshiping Jesus with me. And so that is one way that it affects me and my attitude today is I realize that that we're God's about setting up his kingdom in the lives of men and inviting all to be part of it. And so that's something that I would... Um, I would do with those passages. Uh, number 10, Daniel B says, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Hold back to, back to number 10, back to number 10. You also said, what about Old Testament prophecies about future sacrifices? Okay, that I, I personally, I used to be bothered by that when I first heard about it. Let's say that it's literally fulfilled. Some say, well, it's symbolic. It's just meaning the oneness of mankind under, under the reign of God. Um, you know, Jesus fulfills it. So all we're really doing is commemorating it. You know, we're going to be focusing on Jesus. But let's say that it's literal, that, that there's actually this literal giant temple and their people are coming from all lands and they're actually coming to Israel and they're observing the Passover. And and then there's, there's my cat. Hold on. Aww. <laughs> okay, I just, she's going to leave, I think. So I wanted to show it to you. Um, all right, so... Um, I don't really have a problem with that. Uh, two things I'll say. One, that's in the future. That doesn't mean it's in the present. Acts, the book of Acts, and the book of Hebrews, these make it very clear. We, are, we do not have to practice sacrifices now, and there's actually a potential risk in Gentiles trying to go over to do sacrifices right now because Israel is still in rebellion to God. The people of Israel are still, not all of them, but as a, as a group, collectively, are not in submission to Christ. And so those sacrifices are being done in rebellion. Okay, so we don't want to be part of that. But in the future, there could be a time where the millennial kingdom comes or the eternal kingdom comes, right? And then probably, I would think in the millennial kingdom, that there's these sacrifices happening at the temple and G Gentiles are part of it because now it's being done as a testimony to who Jesus is. So it has a different function. It's in a different sort of time period, like in the kingdom, a different kingdom era. And so for that reason, I wouldn't have a problem with it. Number 10, Daniel B says, how should we make sense of the doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer in some English Bibles when it doesn't occur in earlier manuscripts? Should we not use it? Oh, you know what, Daniel? I'd have to look into that freshly. It's been a little while since I've looked into it. Um, uh, well, let me just bring people up to speed a little bit on it. So the doxology we're going to find probably in the New King James. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right. Now, there's a footnote in the New King James that says that the NU text or uh, there's there's a basically it says there's a group of scholars, more modern scholar scholarly thinking that says that this phrase is is not there, that it's not original. Um, so the NIV doesn't have it. The NASB, 90, 1995 version, it puts it in brackets. See these brackets here? That's a translator's way of telling you in some translations, hey, this is questionable. We're putting it here, but it's questionable. Why do they do that? Because they don't know for sure, but they're leaning one way and they want to give you all the data. So their footnote says this clause found uh, is not found in early manuscripts. That's what their footnote number two says there. You can't see it on screen. 
the English Standard Version just leaves it out. It's just not there at all. So um, generally speaking, when I do look into these things, I usually end up falling on the same side as what more of the modern textual critical scholars are thinking. Okay, so I tend to end up falling in that same category. Um, so, I, you know, how did it get there? Um, maybe it was a, a, a commentary that sort of, you know, like a, a scribe wrote on the side and later another scribe's copying it and they go, Wait, was that on the side? Or did he forget to add it so he wrote on the side? Or was it commentary? Or was it like a preaching point that they put over on the side there? Maybe there was some question. That's where I tend to go with those things. I'll look at your question again, see if there's something I can add to that. Um, how should we make sense of it? Doesn't occur in early manuscripts. Should we not use it? Oh, um, I would say you can use it, right? Is there anything wrong with the phrase? God's is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Is there anything wrong with that phrase? No, it's entirely true and good and helpful and encouraging and a statement of faith. So it's, it's, it's good. Question is, is it original? <laughs> so um, yeah, so you can use it. I just, the question is, should we say that it's in verse 13 of Matthew 6? All right, next question. This is number 11. Hi, Mike. I always hear God has a plan for your life. What does this mean? Is this about salvation, um, gifting, calling, or about God's overall will for believers? Is this specific or general? Thanks. So what does it mean? God has a plan for your life. Okay, the way I, the way I tend to think, let me, here's my personal thoughts. Here's how I process this. I tend to think God has his, and, and I'm okay with these terms, his preferred will what he wants you to do. Then he has what he'll allow you to do. Some people call his permissive will. Um, I want you to do this. Like God, God's plan for everyone in that sense is I want you to get saved. Okay, so I could tell a person who I don't know, God has a plan or a purpose for you and it's to know him through Jesus Christ because he loves you. That would be his, his desired will, what he wants. But God's, God allows us to have free will. He allows real decisions to take place in the world around us. And so his 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 perfection preference, his desire for you isn't necessarily like this is going to always be what happens in your life. Um, and so that speaks very gen generally though about salvation. What about specific things like who I'm going to get married to? Does God have a specific person for me to get married to? Does he have a specific job for me to have? Does he have a very specific ministry for me to serve in? And the answer I have to this is it's complicated and we, I think we we dangerously oversimplify it when we say just plain yes to all of those questions. I think that we live in a a real relationship with God. And sometimes God has very specific things he wants you to do and he may lay it upon your heart. He may send someone else to do it. The Holy Spirit may somehow reveal this to you. In which case, then you can say, this is God's plan for me. That is the plan. I'm going to do that. You, you, you have confirmation that it's from the Lord. Otherwise, I think we're, we're very often in a situation where we just make good choices and we just seek first the kingdom of God. And I think more often than not, we're just making real choices, which means even things like who you marry, that's a choice you make. That there isn't just one person out there for you to marry. I don't believe that. That may be the case for some people, but in general, I think that's probably not generally the case. When I prayed about this and what I thought the Lord was revealing to me when I prayed about my wife was that I could marry her and she was a good person to marry, but not that she was like the only person for me. And if I just pick the right one, then I have like this guaranteed good marriage. I went into marriage feeling no guarantees about a good marriage, feeling like it was going to take a lot of hard work and a lot of dying to self and a lot of very serious attention to make the marriage healthy. 
and we have a great marriage now, but it's not because I pick the perfect person and therefore I get a, a perfect marriage. That's uh, that's actually kind of lazy, <laughs> in my opinion. Sorry, just I'm not pulling any punches today. Um, so um, yeah, that God has a plan for your life. Uh, when it comes to even things like gifting and calling, I think these things are optional. And I have scripture to support this. In First Corinthians seven, he suggests that the married person that they um, they do well because they get married and they can honor God in marriage, but that the single person does even something a little better, even a more lofty, lofty, lofty because not just because they're single. Well, you're not just better because you're single, but because you can use your singleness to serve the Lord. The married person is is thinking of the things of uh, the world, how he may please his wife. That's not a bad thing, okay? That's just his preoccupation. I need to make sure that I have retirement set up for us. I need to make sure that I have the roof over our house and that we have whatever my wife needs. I want to make sure that we have those things, right? Especially in their culture where the men are doing a lot of very specific jobs that women are not going to be able to do. So, the, so you're thinking about how to take care of your family, your wife, your kids, you're not as available for a mission trip. You're not as available to go out and do outreaches. You're not as available to serve the church. The single person, they do even better, he says. But here's the subtext because they can serve the Lord more with all their time. But here's the subtext we often miss. Paul's presenting this to them as if, as if it's a decision they can make. You want to seek the Lord in singleness? You want to seek the Lord in marriage? You can make a decision here. How strongly are you drawn towards marriage? You can actually make some choices here. Now, there may be some that are called, like Paul in Acts, the Holy Spirit says, set aside Paul and Barnabas to the work which I have called them to. They're very specifically called to specific ministries. But does that mean that every single Christian gets that kind of specific call? No, I don't think it does. And um, I think it gives us peace when we realize, always pray about your decisions, but please, Christians, don't be afraid to make decisions. Go seek to serve the Lord. And if you're not sure if you should do it or not, just ask this. Am I seeking God's kingdom? Will this be good for the kingdom of the Lord? Will this be a good way to serve the Lord in my life? And if the answer is yes, then it's an option for you. Number 12. All right. Kira Britton Lacks, 18. Kira, Kira Britton Lacks, 18, says, Could you explain Exodus 20, verse 4? Is God stating we shouldn't have any images at all, like the images we see of Jesus in churches? Or what about the people who portray Jesus in biblical movies? I actually had a conversation with someone just a few days, several days ago on this issue. Exodus 24, and I'll tell you about my own journey on this. I used to think that this meant artwork was bad in general. Okay, I was a teenager. I just started reading the Bible. You shall not make for, for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven or above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Specifically, this idea of not making any likeness. Like, so I can't, I can't make any art is kind of what it sounds like. Um, and, and your question is not even that strict as what my own opinion was. In my journey, though, I thought, yeah, like, okay, so art is just generally wrong. And I don't know how long I held on to that view, whether it was months or years or what, I don't remember. But I think I was completely misunderstanding things. And you know what really shook me up, what got me to realize I'd misunderstood it, is this is Exodus 20, verse 4. But if you read on in Exodus, you find that God tells them very clearly to make for the tabernacle images. Images of things like pomegranates. Images of things like angels. Angels like cherubim, like, like in the, the temple as part of like the tapestry, when he has them build the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the lid that goes inside the Holy of Holies, it has two golden angels with wings coming together and an open space between them. And their wings are there because they represent the angels that stand in the presence of God. And they're sort of covering, 
right? They're, they're sort of covering, and there's nothing made. There's an empty space. The empty space is actually more important than the angels. The empty space is to say, but nothing in this temple represents God because God is not like anything in creation. That, I think, is the, the command. So art is good. Art is a wonderful thing. I totally misunderstood Exodus in my own earlier years. You, you can make um, likenesses of what's in heaven and above and earth beneath and all that, but you cannot make them as an idol or something that you will serve and worship. It's the context of worship that's the problem. So they have the angels there, but no, no worship is directed to these angelic images inside the tabernacle. They are ignored. They All they do is point to the presence of God in the tabernacle. That's all they do. So images are not wrong. The worship of the images is wrong. And that's where the, the real debate is. So if you have a picture of like um, a, like a saint on your wall, or, or I mean, we're all saints. So the whole concept of saints in that, in that old sense is, I think, erroneous. But um, you have a picture of like a, a deceased Christian who you see as an inspiration. They're on your wall. And you, they just remind you of the life they lived, the commitment they had. I don't have a problem with that. Um, what if you have a picture of Jesus, though? The question is if you worship it, you bow to it, you're praying to it, that's weird. That's idolatry. That these are when religious practices go pointed towards these things, that's when it moves towards idolatry. Okay, that's a different issue. But what about Jesus? Um, Jesus actually came and took on human form. So when we um, if we make a, a picture of Jesus, a paint, a drawing of Jesus, or something like that, at least our perception, we don't really know what he looked like. Nobody does, but but if we did. Is that idolatry? Well, again here, I think the line is, are you worshiping it? And admittedly, the tendency for people to start giving obeisance or some sort of special like religious significance to pictures of Jesus, whether it's like a little pocket thing you put when you have with you, maybe you rub it when you're like, you know, praying. I'm like, that starts to get weird. So guard your hearts, don't do that. If none of that's happening, I don't have a problem with the image itself. Although I realize it can very easily become a problem, but I don't want to tell people they can't do it at all. Actors portraying uh, Jesus, um, I've done this on mission trips where we did like a skit and I pretended to be the Jesus character. I also pretended to be the Satan character <laughs> when we did these skits. And so um, hopefully not at the same location because that was a little confusing for people. But, um, but I don't have a problem with that personally because everyone knows you're not trying to pretend you're Jesus. You're trying to communicate truths of Christ. I hope that answers your question. I really do. Gabriel or Gabrielle uh, Colson says, Hi, Mike. I was wondering of a kind of way to correct people who say, God just wants me to be happy. Thanks. Um, so, huh. What's a kind way to deal with it? You got a friend who says like, you know, I, I, I know um, I'm just really not happy in my marriage. I think God just wants me to be happy though. You know, he really wants, he wants me to be happy. Um, What's a kind way? Uh, often, if you want to move towards kindness, you start asking questions instead of asserting truths. So asserting truths can sometimes feel more offensive. So you say, God wants me to be happy. And I'll say, you know what? He wants you to be holy. Right? <laughs> or say you're married. God wants you to be married. <laughs> like, that's what he wants. Like, don't leave your spouse. That's what it says. You know? So like you could, you could just give them the hard facts, which is fine. That's acceptable. But maybe you feel that they are... Um, uh, easily offended and they'll get upset with you and they won't listen. And so you think, is there a, a nicer way to do it? Is there a kinder, more gentler way? I, I would say maybe ask questions. So God wants you to be happy. Okay, well, do you think God wants everyone to be happy? Do you think it, that it's okay for us to just do whatever we want as long as it makes us happy? 
Because some people are happy when they're cheating on their spouse. I mean, it makes them, it really does make them happy. Or some people are happy when they're doing ungodly things. Like they're, they're stealing from people. Like kleptomaniacs are happy when they steal. Does that make it okay? Some people are happy when they, when they uh, live off of government aid, even though they're able-bodied and they could work. But they're happy that way because it's because they don't have to work. So it makes them happy. Like, so you could start bringing up scenarios. Um, that might be one option, one option to, uh, you know, another question you could ask is, do you have scripture that says that? Is there any scripture that says that? So the thing is, like, God does want to bring us joy and peace and happiness in a sense. It's true. But he never wants us to direct ourselves at our own happiness because that is a narcissism that's dangerous to us. We're supposed to live for his pleasure. We live for his pleasure. And it's in, it's in giving ourselves away. It's in losing ourselves. It's in not seeking our happiness that we find better happiness and better joy. But we live for the pleasure of God. I live for God's pleasure. And it's in his ways and in his goodness and in his kindness and in his love and in serving him that I find my joy. That is a selfless happiness that is achieved long-term through service and selflessness. Um, number 14, Matt Love Concepts says, if God gives us a promise, could his promise be dependent on our obedience and could we veto a promise either by our actions or by our unwillingness to receive? Then you said, please elaborate on Romans 4, 13 to 15. Let me just answer the general question first, then we'll go to Romans. Um, God gives conditional and unconditional promises in scripture. Um, they both exist. And so, yes, it could be. God can give you a promise. He's like, I'm going to do this for you if you do that. Does that mean earning your salvation? No, the promise isn't salvation. But God may be like, look, if you do this, I'll do this. If you become a missionary, I will use you mightily in whatever country, you know, and then you're like, oh, Lord, I really, I don't think I want to do that. You don't do it. Well, God's not going to use you mightily in that country now. So, yes, um, his promises can be dependent on our obedience and we can veto, veto a promise, so to speak, by our actions or by our unwillingness to receive. That is true. I think that um, we have examples of all of that in scripture, but Romans 4.13, let's go to the passage. I have a suspicion. Here we go. The promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world, that's the promise, was not through the law, but through the, righteous, through the righteousness of faith. If those who were of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. Not sure how this relates to promises in general. All I would say is since I would say there's promises with conditions and promises without conditions, um, then we should be open to all of the above. But the promise to Abraham and his descendants, um, let's just try to see what Paul's actual point is here. It was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Okay, so Abraham believed God. God accounted it to right, as righteousness. And God makes promises to Abraham on the condition of his belief. That's the condition, not the condition of obe obeying the law. Now, the law had promises as well. The law's promises were very different. The law's promises were do this and you live. Don't do this and you die. Here are the blessings. Here are the curses. You do this, you get blessed. You do this, you get cursed. Like these are specific promises in the law. They're recorded. And so these are all works-based. And Paul's point is that um, the promise is faith-based. It's still conditional. It's conditioned upon faith. For if those who were of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise nullified. Okay, because it's the condition of the promise is different. For the law brings about wrath, right? Because I sin and then judgment. Okay, if you do this, you get cursed. Okay, well, I did it. So now I'm going to get cursed. So that brings wrath. But where there is no law, there's also no violation. 
right? I didn't, I, I, um, if I have no rules, then I haven't broken them. <laughs> so I think that's kind of the point. Paul's just trying to really distance the gospel from obedience to the law and from works in general. He's trying to distance the, how we get saved from those things in Romans. I hope that helps. Forgive me if I'm not seeing the connection that you may have seen there. Caleb Jor says, what are your thoughts on the Proto-Evangelium of James? Does it support the perpetual virginity of Mary? Um, the Proto-Evangelium of James, if I remember off the top of my head here, it um, talks about Mary sort of magically, like when she gave birth to Jesus, that he just sort of like appeared. And the... Uh, perpetual virginity of Mary, part of the teaching that some people have on this is that Mary remained a virgin in the very literal sense of how you would, I don't want to be crude here, but how you would test medically for virginity. And so giving birth to a child would destroy that and you would no longer have that medical confirmation of virginity. So then they would, the proto-evangelium may go to support an idea of this sort of mystical poof, like all she's in labor and then all of a sudden the baby's just out. He's just out. Uh, the Proto-Evangelion of James, though, is, is written much later. James didn't write it, okay? Uh, Proto-Evangelion, meaning like before the gospel stuff, it seems to have been written by someone who just had stuff he wanted to teach, and so he makes up new information about Jesus. This happened a lot in the second and third centuries. We read the real gospels and the real story from the first century, but not this book. Um, does it support the perpetual virginity of Mary? I, my answer would be no. Because, like the truthfulness of it, because it it may help us track how the doctrine became, how it came into existence, how people started thinking that Mary was always a virgin. They this combined okay proto evangelion combined with the idea in the church later on, even even two hundred years after Jesus, the church is thinking that like sex is kind of icky and sinful in general, right? Like you should only have sex to procreate, like that's the only purpose of it. That's not biblical. That would be like weird things that is coming from um, other cultural things influencing the church. Now, if you think that sex in general is kind of icky, kind of like a compromise, kind of like a sad and unfortunate thing instead of a blessing from God in the context of marriage, if you think that um, Mary is this pure vessel who who gets exalted more and more in church history, more and she still is continuing to grow in exaltation in church history, then we're tracking the doctrinal development of teachings about Mary, we're not we're not finding that it's all ancient and true, because the one glaring issue that people tend to sometimes miss when you read the Proto Evangelium, you're not reading canonical scripture. Nobody thinks this is canon. This is not scripture. When you read the actual scripture, Mary went to be with Joseph, and it's implied had normal, healthy marriage relations with him, had other children, sons and daughters not just Jesus. Her virginity is not about keeping her pure. It's not about Mary being pure and sinless. That's not what her virginity is about, I think, biblically speaking. Biblically speaking, because because not being a virgin doesn't make you impure if you're married, if it's in the right context. There's nothing impure about that. So her, her being a virgin is to say that Jesus's birth was supernatural, that he's human, but he's also divine because you have a woman and then you have God just divinely supernaturally making her pregnant. That's the point of the virginity of Mary is to suggest that Jesus is conceived virgin conception, not perpetual virginity. Virgin conception is about the deity of Christ. Perpetual virginity is about the exaltation of Mary. And I think that that's how the doctrine developed. 
Number 16, BasemanJR100 says, what is the Greek meaning of son of perdition? Is it a specific person or a general statement? The Greek meaning of son of perdition. Well, perdition means waste, but um, let me just look it up. I'm going to look it up. We're going to do a word search, uh, like an exegetical search real quick. It's going to actually take just a moment, but why not? I think others would be interested in this. So um, let's see. I'm going to go to 2 Thessalonians 2.3. That'll be the passage I look at. And um, I might be able to show it to you guys a little bit too. This will take just a moment. Okay, the word apoleos, um, or apolea, that's this word right here. That That's the lexical form. Oh, it's way too small for you. Let me boost this up. I'll make it about that big. It's going to get hard for me to read. Um, okay, so this is the word that's used. Now, this is BDAG, BDAG. You guys ask me about this every time I mention it. So BDAG stands for um, a, a lexicon. It's an abbreviation for a book called A Greek English Lexicon of the New Testament and Other Early Christian Literature. We call it BDAG because the author's name's uh, Bauer, Dunker, um, uh, Arndt, and Gingrich, I think, I think are the names. I'm trying to remember. All of the names off the top of my head here, but I think those are the names. Anyway, it's just the names of the authors. If you just search BDAG lexicon, it'll pop right up for you. This is a lot better than, say, Strong's because Strong's gives you really um, very, it's just so little info, you're not really learning very much about the word. BDAG's going to offer you different uses of the word and examples of the use, those uses in different ancient literature. So here we have this word, apoleia. Okay, in general, it says in the sense of loss, that's the general usage of it, right? But it has these specific uses. Just like green can mean very different things in different contexts. Here's specific uses. Gives us two. The destruction that one causes, destruction or waste. Then it quotes sources. In Aristotle, Aristotle uses it in these locations. Polybius uses it in these locations. And you've got other papyri that have it used in different locations. Um, this is when they said, Jesus, why are you wasting this ointment? Why is this? A, this is a waste of ointment. This is when Jesus is being anointed. All right. Then there's the destruction that one experiences. Ah, okay. There's the different uses of the word. One is the destruction one causes. One is the destruction one experiences. So this may be the use in the um, Second Thessalonians passage. And one way you can confirm it is you just look and say, hey, look, they specifically call out this passage as being used, Second Thessalonians 2.3 where is the son of perdition, as being used in this second sense of the destruction one experiences. So the lawless man, the Antichrist is who I would think this is, he is, he is going to be destroyed. He's known as a, by a title about the one who will be destroyed, the one who shall be destroyed. That would be the connotation there. And you can read the whole definition if you want. All right, that's kind of how word studies work when you're looking at some re Greek resources. I know it's a little bit hard to dig in, but... There's some benefits that are there. Alexis Valen says, should we be concerned about counter arguments that atheists and skeptics present to our faith? Hey, Pastor Mike, I'm new to the channel and I've been loving your videos. That's great, Alexis. I'm very happy that you're here. Um, oh, I'm, I'm switching 17 and 18. Let me just tell Sarah that. I, I'm switching 17 and 18, Sarah. Sorry about that. Okay, so for 17, we'll take Alexis Valen. Yes, we should be concerned with counter arguments that anybody offers to our faith because we care about them and we want them to come to Christ. So if I find there's an obstacle from someone believing in Jesus, 
I want to remove that obstacle if I can. Okay, I can't always do it, but if I can, I want to remove it. I also realize that there are counter arguments would lead others astray. And so I care about those people and I want to give them good arguments. And I also realize their counter arguments could mess me up. So I want to know the truth and I want to examine the truth and I want to make sure that I'm in the truth. And so I would dig into those things. What I found online is that generally speaking, atheists, forgive me, skeptics who are watching, like, you, you might think I'm posturing. Oh, this is apologetic posturing. Like, I'm just trying to be honest here. I find that generally speaking, atheist arguments against Christianity are usually very poor. They're not well thought out. They're not well defended. They're not well explained. And they do tend to focus more on um, giving an impression that something's wrong with Christianity and then moving quickly to other arguments, but not actually camping out and saying, I'm going to defend this thoroughly. So you'll often get in these discussions where someone brings an accusation against Christianity and you give a really thoughtful response and then they change the subject. Like they ignore your response. Your response is just set aside as though, as though that whole conversation didn't happen and a new argument is brought up and then you bring a new defense and a new argument is brought up and a new defense. And it's kind of like um, good answers to tough questions don't matter to some people. They just want to keep trying to give you gotcha questions. That's a separate issue, okay? I have challenges to the Christian faith. I want to answer these. But if all I have is I just like doing gotcha questions for Christians. This is like, this is really, really low rung reasoning here. And I, I pray for that person, but I want to point, I want to draw attention to the gotcha questions. The issue of you bring up a challenge to Christianity and when it's answered, you just bring up another challenge. You don't actually process the info and adjust your thinking based upon the reasons that have been brought. That's, those are some of my concerns. Based Boomer, we'll go to question 18. Based Boomer says, is praying the gay away wrong? It seems biblical to me. Um, I think it's wrong. I do think it's unbiblical, Based Boomer. So I think biblically, um, here, here's, here's the, I'll explain why I think people are confused about this in a second, but here's my, my thought. Biblically, we're to stop sinning, okay? But, but biblically, we're not called to be, stop being tempted. And this would require some kind of special power amongst us to not be tempted anymore. The Bible talks to Christians not like they're people who, let's let's say that it's lust. Let's say your, your issue is not homosexuality, but it's just lust in general. You, you're, you're a man and you lust after women. You're a woman and you lust after men or, you know, and it's not even, it's it's opposite sex attraction, but it's, but it's out of context of marriage and, and you know that it's inappropriate. Um, and what if someone tells you, man, just pray the lust away. Just pray the lust away. Is that biblical? And my answer is no, because the Bible just constantly talks like I'm going to deal with this for the rest of my life, you know? In Galatians, the passage we read earlier in Galatians, where it walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Well, it also says some pretty hairy things about what goes on between the spirit and the flesh in the battle inside your own, your own self. Um, let me take you there and just, here, Galatians 5. Verse 16, he says, walk in the spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, do you still have the flesh with you as a Christian? Is there any point where the flesh is not with you as a Christian? No, it's still there. And that means the desires of the flesh are still there, right? In fact, Paul acknowledges the war that goes on in every Christian. For this, these are Christians now. The desires of the flesh, my lust, my greed, my envy, my covetousness, my jealousy, my pride, these desires, they are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh and they're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Why doesn't Paul just say, pray the lust away, pray the flesh away? Because 
as Christians, I will battle with this, this, this thing between the spirit and the flesh till the day I die. So if I tell somebody of a specific sin, you name it, homosexuality, whatever, pray it away. I'm not being honest about the biblical teaching about the flesh and the spirit. And so all we're called to do is not walk in the flesh, but walk in the spirit. So don't pray the gay away. No, instead conduct your behavior in godly ways. That's the call. Just don't engage in it. Don't, don't, okay, so you're going to have desires that come up, but don't give your mind over to it. That's when it becomes fantasizing, right? Not just a desire, not just an inclination, but like I'm yielding my imagination over to it. I'm, you know, just going wild in my imagination on that sin. That's also sin, okay? That I've yielded myself to it. Mentally, I'm walking in the flesh. Don't walk in the flesh physically either and engage in the physical behaviors. Walk in the spirit instead. So this is the problem of saying pray the gay away. Um, it do, now, I want to answer some confusion here because in 1 Corinthians, it does say that there were some in the church, 1 Corinthians 6, who used to be homosexual. But the Bible doesn't mean used to have homosexual desires, now they don't have homosexual desires. When the Bible uses the term, it's always talking about the behaviors, not the inclination. Do you catch this? The behaviors, not the inclination. When it says some of you used to be thieves, it doesn't mean now you no longer even desire to steal things. He just means you don't steal anymore. Some of you used to be idolaters. You used to be fornicators. He doesn't mean you don't want to fornicate. He means you just don't do it anymore. So a former homosexual in the biblical sense is someone who simply doesn't do that anymore. Because the Bible is concerned with the behavior, not the identity. Because your identity is a Christian who's in Christ. That's your primary identity. Not your, your sexual inclinations being presented as an identity that you have to change is not, it's totally 21st century. This is not in scripture. The whole concept of sexual identity doesn't exist in the Bible. It's, it's a modern invention and it causes a lot of confusion. I hope that that helps. Number 19, Jordan Tiger. How do I know if I have a judgmental attitude towards someone or an honest concern about their sin? Ah, you ask yourself this question, Jordan. Here, at least here's how I would handle this issue. Am I overreacting? See, because judgmental attitudes or having malice in my heart towards somebody, it, it causes me to overreact. So what you can do is you can take what they're doing and put it in the life of someone who you don't have that attitude towards at all. And ask yourself, would I react the same if this person I like was doing the same thing they're doing? And if your answer is absolutely, I'd react identically the same, then you're probably not being judgmental in, in a negative sense, right? Because it's good to be, it's good to have good judgment. Good judgment's good. But, um, but yeah, am I being honest about their sin or am I just being kind of like mean-spirited? I'll put, I'll put that term on it. Put their issue on a person you like and ask yourself, would I react the same way? And if your answer is yes, then you're probably just having honest concerns about sin. I would also ask you, ask you um, do you care about their restoration or do you only care about pointing out how wrong they are? Um, and if you care about their restoration, then that's good. That means there's a loving attitude behind it as well. And number 20, last question for today. The live stream that has been a little sketchy and has dropped and died and been resurrected. <laughs> um, Elise Kopalar says... It said the story from John 7:53 to 8:11. This is the story of the woman caught in adultery. You guys are familiar with it, right? Um, it isn't found in the earlier manuscripts. It's one of my favorite pictures of God's grace. What do you think about how we should deal with this? Thanks. Okay, Elise, let me say, and I'm going to answer this quickly because this is the Q&A. I deal with this in more detail in a particular video where I deal with um, 
manuscripts and changes to supposed changes to the Bible, that sort of thing. And so I'm going to link it down below for anybody who wants more info on this question number 20. I'll link it down below in the video description as soon as I can. And if mods, if one of you could put that that same three video little playlist where I, I always ask you to share it with people because I think people always want to know about it, about um, Bible translations, those burning questions we have about changes in the Bible, so to speak. Um, if you can put that in the live chat, that would be great for Elise. Okay, so Elise, here's my here's my thought. Um, my bottom line conclusion is I do agree, not that I'm the one deciding, but I think they're right, those who've looked at the manuscripts and said, hey, we think that this passage in John is not original. I do think that they're right. Um, my biggest concern, though, is not the theology of the issues because there's no real theological issue at stake. My, my biggest concern is the heart of Christians who think, here's a passage like you, here's a passage I love, a story I love, and you're telling me it, it's not... It's not original. This is probably the biggest deal passage when it comes to that. Of all, of, there's like three passages in the New Testament in particular, right? There's a First John verse, one verse, uh, about one verse. There's the the ending of Mark, which I'm going to deal with in a couple of weeks. Then there is this passage. That's that. Those are the big ones for for normal Christians. These are the ones that you can, you're going to care about, and it hurts your heart. My statement will be this: the passage can be. Um, helpful to you and you can be attached to it, that doesn't mean that it was originally in the Bible. And probably for most of you, whatever Bible you've been reading, this is not a Bible, this is commentary, but whatever Bible you've been reading probably has, probably has footnotes in the passage and they've been telling you your whole life, look, this is probably, this is a you know, questionable passage. Most of us. Now, um, your heart might be bothered by this as mine was when I first came to this conclusion but I'm also, I've got to ask myself this, like, wait, do I want my comfort I get from this verse, from this section of scripture of, of John, whether it's really in John or not, am I more interested in that or am I more interested in knowing what God has really said? That is the bigger issue to me. If I'm going to receive the comfort from what scripture has said, then I can't really lean on passages that I don't think are original. What I'm saying is it's a hard pill to swallow and I think we should swallow it. I think we should swallow it and say this woman caught in adultery passage. It's not part of John originally. Now that does leave open the question of where does it come from and is it historical? Okay, it doesn't, just because it's not part of John originally doesn't mean it isn't true and it doesn't mean it's not historical. It, it, it's probably not part of John, that seems very likely, but there's a, a, a case to be made that the story of the woman caught in adultery is a story that was going around in the, in the church about Jesus that people loved, just like you, they loved it so much that it starts finding its way into the different manuscripts. So it's in John in different places. I think in one manuscript it was like in Luke or something. Like the same story is kind of bouncing around like they're trying to find a place to keep it because people love it so much. So some people think, I think this is Dan Wallace's opinion, and he's he's actually a professional on these on these topics, um, well known and well respected. And, and his opinion, if I remember correct, is hey, um, not authentic to John, but very possibly, maybe even likely, an actual story about Jesus that goes back to the first century. In which case, you would take a different attitude towards the passage. And here's the attitude: that might have happened. That certainly feels like the Jesus I know. That certainly looks like, like the kind of response he would have. It certainly is consistent with my understanding of Jesus and the gospel and all that. But I'm also not going to hang my whole theology on that verse. And it's interesting to me that countless people nowadays abuse that very passage of scripture. There's a great passage of, 
I say scripture, technically I don't think it's part of scripture, right? But they use this, this story, this pericope, they would call it, of um, the woman caught in adultery to justify all kinds of sin and to tell people that they can't ever come against sin. They can't judge sin. And they say, well, don't be the first to cast the stone. Don't be let him who's without sin cast the first stone. And I like to always remind these people, casting the stone in that story is trying to kill somebody, not just saying that they're wrong. Okay, so just side note, if someone says that your sin is sinful, they're not throwing stones at you, that would be murder. They're just saying that you're doing something wrong. If, if they actually try to kill you, then you can say, don't, don't uh, throw stones. <laughs> that would be my encouragement. This verse gets used wrong all the time, this passage of scripture. But, um, but yeah, I, I think those are, those are my thoughts on it. And, and I do share more in detail. Where is it found? Why do we have the perspective on it? Um, yeah. So why is it even in any of our Bible translations? And I think the answer is because people, people freak out if a translator removes this passage entirely from the text. Because they don't know the critical issues. They don't know the textual issues. They just freak out. And then they're starting these websites and they're telling everybody about this horrible translation that is taking out the story of the woman caught in adultery. And so what most translations do is they put it in with a footnote. And the footnotes say things like the following. This is in the uh, English Standard Version. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And then it's going to give you more details down below. Okay, so it's telling you, hey, the earliest manuscripts don't, but that's really vague. Like, you don't know what that means, earliest manuscripts. So I, in my teaching video, I go into more detail on this. Um, other ones, NASB, they have the following in chapter, um, um, it, and there's a bracket here. Everyone went to his own home right before chapter 8, and then there's a footnote. Okay, so if you notice the bracket, if you notice the bracket, you'll notice this, and you'll say, okay, there's a problem here. You might look at the footnote and read it, and their footnote simply says, I'll read it to you. Later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman, numbering it as John 7.53 through 8.11. So they, they're saying it's, it's added, okay? But you have to notice the bracket and read the footnote, which a lot of people won't. The NIV has a more in-your-face approach, kind of like the ESV, and they have a big bar across the text, and then they have this long explanation. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have this passage. A few manuscripts include these verses, wholly or in part, and it tells you some other places, right? As I said, it appears in Luke, apparently in two, at least two manuscripts. Sometimes it's after John 7, 36. Another time it's after John 21, 25, because it's like a passage looking for a place to sit. A loved story believed to be true about Jesus that they want to include with all this other stuff, but it wasn't originally part of it is what it seems like. Um, and so then they include it, and the whole thing's included in italics. So the NIV is actually probably the most clear. New King James Version, they aren't going to say much of anything. Okay, they have a, they'll probably have a footnote. Um, let me back up. Um, there's just a footnote, and there's footnotes all over the place. And they'll say, hey, the uh, the NU, which is like a an apparatus uh, they use to just talk about which texts, what they think the original Greek said. So this apparatus, it brackets this passage as not original in the text. They are present in over 900 manuscripts of John. And then you enter into the King James only debate with that footnote, which I recommend the video series that we linked hopefully in the comments and I'll be linking down below. And you guys with that, that's something you can check out. Today's stream kind of threw me off with the uh, internet issues we had. I will be back with you guys Monday, the next one in the Mark series, which is something I'm stoked about. Like I hope you'll have a chance to check it out. We're going to look at tons of historic evidence um, for the 
Joseph of Arimathea, the burial of Jesus in a known tomb, and tons of just, it's, it's good stuff, okay? And this is stuff that me, as an apologist, has a hard time finding, so I'm excited to make a video that just makes it right there available for everybody, and I'm going to be um, sharing it with you. I hope that it stirs your faith and shores up your confidence and makes you smile. All right, that's about it. Have a wonderful day, and I will see you guys on Monday, hopefully without internet problems. See ya.